Dolan and the Gypsies are resting in their bunks aboard the two spaceships after their narrow escape from the cloud of rainbow-coloured candy floss stuff which had threatened to engulf them. As they speed soundlessly through empty space, all is quiet in the cabins, except in the pilot's seats, where Jimbird Flyflower and Crispin Lob Mincing are working at their navigational instruments. We mix the coordinates 33373.29140 by 60015, Crispin, my boy, said Jimbird. Check, mate, came Lob Mincing's voice over the radio from the other ship. Jimbird chuckled. You playing chess over there by any chance? I was simply agreeing, mate, said Lob Mincing, a trifle huffily. But my coordinates on the instant matter transporter... Agree with yours. Just my little joke, me friend, said Jimbird. And to his crew. Right, me little ones, check your seatbelts. We're about to save a few light years and visit a little-known planet tucked away behind the Epsilon galaxy that I've always had a anchor in to take a look at, said Jimbird. Right, Crispin. OMT, ten seconds from... Now. Jimbird counted off the seconds and both pilots punched the IMT buttons simultaneously. Immediately, both spaceships bellied down through fluffy white clouds in a summery blue sky, swung their noses into the upright position, fired their retro rockets, and lowered themselves neatly to the ground. And immediately, a very hairy individual ran from the shelter of a clump of trees, bit Jimbird's spaceship, howled with pain, and scuttled back into the trees again. The huge ears on Major General Fester B. Snarkbuster USAF open brackets retired close brackets which didn't match, were bright red with excitement. His very hairy nostrils twitched as he roared to his companion. I got him, by Jiminy! I got him! You will remember that Major General Fester B. Snarkbuster, USAF, open brackets, retired, close brackets, is the director of the National Association for Research and Scientific and Technological Investigation, or NASTY for short and that it was from here that Jimbird, a top scientist at the Association, and Dolan have borrowed a spaceship. That it was from here that Crispin Lob Mincing was sent in the second of the three completed rockets to bring Jimbird back, and that Jimbird persuaded Lob Mincing to join the expedition when they met in space. Since then, Major General Fester B. Snarkbuster, USAF, open brackets, retired, closed brackets, has been trying to keep track of their movements by the means of the IMT monitor screen at Nasty. This gives a three-dimensional picture, which shows the stars and planets as green glowing dots. Jimbird's spaceship as a red one, and Lob Mincing's as blue. Since the two spaceships were always together, the monitor screen was locked onto them, so that they stayed in the centre of the screen, while the universe moved around them as they travelled. 
and now the two spacecraft had come to a standstill once again. Major General Fester B. Snarkbuster, USAF, open brackets, retired, close brackets, noted the coordinates on the indicators with some amazement. Holy cow! He muttered, as quietly as he was able, jotting down the coordinates. They must be about a, a thousand million light years away. Most impressive performance by your instant matter transporter, fellow Esther, my friend, commented Vladimir Shotitov, his companion, and the double agent from Goblimir. Tain't mine, Vladimir. Jimbird got done fly flower thunk that one up. I'm just an administrator around here. Still, I reckon we got at least one more genius on our hands. He pressed an intercom switch labelled Launching Pad. You there, Mac? A rather offended voice crackled back. My name is Alistair Tethett Mackenzie, and as your chief engineer, I'd be most grateful if you'd take the trouble to address me as such, Major. How many times I gotta tell you, Mr. Mackenzie? I'm a general, not a major. Now you listen here and you listen good. You bat finished number three spaceship? Aye, well, apart from a wee bit of polishing here and there. Never mind all that, Mac. Can you fly the thing? Well, I do understand how all the various controls you function. But I'm actually taking one up. Good enough, Mac. Now you get yourself down to the stores right away and you draw yourself a spacesuit. I'll have to treat that, Mackenzie, if you please, Major. Okay, Mr. Mackenzie, okay. Agreed, Major General Fester B. Snarkbuster, USAF. Open brackets. Retired. Close brackets. And don't you go forgetting I'm a general. He picked up the piece of paper with the coordinates written on. Come on, Vladimir, old buddy. You and me, we're gonna take ourselves a little joyride. The spacecraft were standing side by side in a large clearing in a wooded landscape. To one side of them rose a steep hill, with the mouths of many caves clearly visible in its side. On the other, there was a fast-flowing river, which looked very clear and clean. But these were not what interested the gypsies, as they stood looking about them from the platforms of the airlocks of their vehicles. It was as if an invisible circle had been drawn on the ground around them. And standing on the edge of the circle, surrounding the spaceships, but not daring to cross that line, was a group of the inhabitants of the planet, which Jimbird had named Epsilon One. For the sake of convenience. While the inhabitants gawped at the gypsies, the gypsies scrutinised them. They seem to have reached a stage of uh, development, offered Lob Mincing. Somewhere between Homo Neanderthalensis and Homo sapiens. Stone Age man. What? said Flipper Pilkington. Dolan thought that that was about right. The people who were not carrying clubs or primitive axes or babies stood in a slightly stooped position their arms hanging loosely at their sides with knuckles facing forwards and their legs a little bowed. They were protected by, you could hardly say dressed in, pretty smelly animal furs, 
wrapped around their rather hairy bodies and secured by thongs made out of strips of animal skin of some kind. Their lower jaws were uniformly thrust forward, those of the men being bearded, and they all had a prominent ridge of bone above the eyes, running the length of their small foreheads. Dolan noticed the eyes in particular. They were all brown, deep-set, and had a kind of reflective intelligence, like clever children who'd never been to a school, that you didn't see in even the most active chimpanzees in the zoo. They didn't speak much, though. Noisy children were subdued by a gentle crack across the top of the skull with a club, while communication between adults seemed confined to very basic gesturing. They were obviously not yet up to gesticulating, or a poke in the ribs, or the utterance of the word, uh. Dolan noticed that there was a great deal of, uh, going on at the moment. Father Out spoke up. Ah, may the good Lord help their heathen souls. There's work aplenty for me here, Big Ab. Isn't that the one we saw on the telescreen? Said Dolan. The one that tried to bite our ship? For, advancing with a shambling gait, towards their spacecraft, was one of the larger men, holding a heavy club in one hand, and an axe made of a piece of stone or flint attached to a thick stick in the other. He stopped in front of one of the tail fins of Jim Bird's rocket, looked briefly up at the gypsies, and then attempted to take another huge bite. He uttered a yelp of pain surprise and then angrily dealt the machine two smart, successive blows, one with the club and one with the axe. The resultant loud ringing metallic clanging noises caused him to retreat hastily to the safety of the surrounding circle of his friends, who had all, on seeing what took place, made the same noise, a kind of indrawn breath, a gulp of surprise and discovery. <clears throat> there was now even more, er, uh, going on, and a lot of rib-poking besides. At that moment, a large party of hunters appeared through the trees, dragging behind them the carcasses of a dozen or so creatures that looked like antelope or deer. The people immediately forgot the spaceships and turned their attention to the food. They split up into groups of about the same size, one to each animal. The hunters quickly hacked the carcasses into pieces of about the same size, distributed the meat around the group, and without more ado, they began to eat, completely ignoring the two shining silver spaceships standing less than a hundred yards from them. The hunters, on arrival, had barely glanced at them. Disgusting! They're not even cooking it! said Ivan, in disgust. Jimbird glanced up the hill at the mouths of the caves, in front of each one was a large pile of tree branches, but no wood ash. Dolan noticed this as well. That'll be because they haven't discovered fire yet. Well, what's that stuff up there, then, if it's not firewood? Said Ivan, pointing to the tree brambles. Don't you see? Said Dolan. They pull it all across the mouths of their caves at night, to keep the wild animals out. Jimbird rubbed his old chin with his one hand. Arr! Interesting. No fire, no real language yet, but a degree of social organisation. See, they've got an hunting crew, we know that. And there's a touch of instinctive democracy about the way they split up into groups to share their food, without fighting over it. 
but they do have what psychologists call a short attention span. They seem to have forgotten us already. But Jimbird was wrong. The spaceship-biting individual had not forgotten them. Sitting and eating with his back against a tree, he'd been quietly watching the two spaceships and the gypsies, who were still standing in the doorways. And now he poked a small boy in the ribs, thrust a chunk of meat into his hands, and went, uh, a few times, then pointed with his club in the direction of the spaceships. The boy was about to go, uh, in protest, when his eye fell on the club, and in a moment, he was on his way. He approached the spaceships fearfully, his step getting slower and slower the closer he got. Eventually the boy stopped, about twenty yards from them, threw the meat hastily to the ground, and scampered back to his group. The other groups had stopped eating to watch, and now one by one, each delivered up a piece of red meat, until there was a large pile of it on the ground, in front of the ships. Is that an offering? As if we were visiting gods? said Dolan. Or are they just being generous, I wonder? I hopes tis plain generosity, said Jimbird with a chuckle. Cos if it ain't, and they've got as far as cave painting, there's going to be a lot of very silly books written hereabouts about a million years from now. Dolan had an idea. Jimbird, let's stay and help them. You know, show them how to make fires, how to cook their meat, build things, make decent tools and clothes that don't smell, that kind of thing. Well, I must admit, I'm tempted. It'd be fun, though. And it'd save the poor old devils a few thousand years of blundering about in the dark. Though normally I don't take kindly at tinkering with the natural developments of things. What do you say, Crispy, me boy? Shall we give our hairy friends here a lift up the old evolutionary ladder? It's all right by me, mate, said Lob Mincing. Right then, as decided. We stay. Besides, he said, eyeing the pile of meat. I'm partial to a bit of venison, even if it isn't that well hung. It was quite late at night and dark when Father Out quietly left his spaceship and headed up the hill, through the trees, in the direction of the caves. Although he was now a defrocked priest, twas merely a, a little misunderstanding over the whereabouts of a few bottles of the altar wine. <sighs> but his grace chose to take it seriously, was his explanation. He still retained all the zeal of his calling and was now about to put it into practice. As he got nearer to the caves, he began to clear his throat nervously. It was a long time since he'd done this, and he wanted the clarion call of his faith to ring out loud and clear to the unconverted, and he didn't want the message to be messed up by any coughs or wheezes or hiccups. Nothing must be permitted to obstruct the contact now about to be established between Father Out and his prospective flock. It was a clear night. There was no moon. But the light from a few stars helped to guide him, and he didn't fall over too many times. At length he reached the cluster of caves and paused to recover his strength. 
Eventually, Father Out stood up, walked confidently out in front of the caves, which were now closed up with logs and branches, drew himself up to his full height, took a deep breath, and addressed himself to the task in hand. O ye of little faith! He bellowed. There was an immediate scuffling noise from within the caves. Father Out was pleased. A response. O ye of little faith! Repent of your sins and... Ah! Ouch! A small round pebble had struck him fair and square on the nose. Taking out his handkerchief to stem the bleeding, he pressed on. Come to me that I may cleanse ye of ye sins, and that I may make ye whole again, and... Ow! A large heavy rock hit Father Out in the midriff with some force. Father Out was not unintelligent, and he quickly realised that the cave dwellers, not having heard human speech before and being unable to see in the dark, had taken him for just another wild animal of the night, roaring its threats at them, and so they'd responded in their usual manner, with their only deterrent, a fusillade of rocks. Father Out muttered a hasty, Forever and ever, amen, <laughs> through his handkerchief, and took to his heels, crashing through the undergrowth with stones whizzing about his ears. At the bottom of the hill he stopped to get his breath back, and leant against a large rock. Very gradually he became aware of two things. Warm breath was being exhaled onto the side of his face, and there was a deep rumbling throaty sound very close to hand. Turning his head, Father Out found himself gazing, from a distance of about 18 inches, into the deep slanted yellow eyes of a sabre-toothed tiger. (laughs) 